From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we learn how a strike among torch carriers during Mardi Gras in 1946 led to parades rolling in the dark. We look back at a 2017 episode of the Tripod podcast where Elaine Kaplan-Lovingson brings us the story of the fight for five. But first, it's Lundi Gras, Fat Monday, the day before the carnival season's big finale, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. Parades, balls, festivals, and other events celebrating the season have been underway across South Louisiana since early January. In some rural areas of the state, instead of watching floats and catching beads, the Mardi Gras tradition is to ride horseback, seeking a chicken to catch for a community gumbo. Each community has its own special Mardi Gras tradition. But where did it all begin? Dr. Barry Ancelet has some answers. He's Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies and Center for Louisiana Studies Research Fellow at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Barry, welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm glad to be here. Well, the Mardi Gras season traditionally begins on Twelfth Night, Epiphany, a Christian holiday, 12 days after Christmas that marks when the three wise men visited the Christ child. How did this become the launch of the revelry we know today? Yeah, a lot of people uh, get caught up in discussion about when was Mardi Gras first celebrated in Louisiana? Was it Mobile or New Orleans or some other? Well, more likely, the first Mardi Gras was celebrated uh, in what is now Louisiana by uh, uh, Iberville and Bienville and his men as they were coming down the uh, Mississippi to begin the foundation of Louisiana in 1699. They noticed it was Mardi Gras because they were aware of the liturgical calendar. They knew when Christmas was and Easter was, so they knew when Mardi Gras was. Allegedly, they stopped along the banks of the Mississippi River and, and drank all the booze they had on board and uh, got out and chased some women. What were the Mardi Gras celebrations like in those early days? You mentioned um, the explorers drinking, so we, we can go ahead and check. There, were, there was <laughs> drinking, but were there always parades and floats and costumes and throws? No, I mean, parades, in order to have a parade, you have to have a, something of an urban setting. So you had to wait until a city emerged. Now, the reason why they did those things is because they had done them before in their European origins. Uh, there were two basic branches of the Mardi Gras in Europe. One was urban and the other was rural. One involved parade processions and parades going through the city streets. And the other was out in the country where processions of people, masked and costumed people would go from house to house visiting, uh, expecting some sort of interaction or contribution from their neighbors and friends. Both of those branches got imported to Louisiana. We see the results of one of them in the urban parades we see in Lafayette and, and Baton Rouge and Homa and, and places like that, Lake Charles. The other branch we see out in the countryside here in South Louisiana and uh, also Southeastern Louisiana, which involved the, the, the procession of neighbors uh, going from house to house. And we've also seen them develop into more el elaborate um, things than they were in the beginning. You mentioned uh, what's happening in the cities. We see now there are uh, social organizations that are involved in the, the, the building of the floats, and, and there are balls that are a big part of that city 
uh, experience. And then in the rural areas, with the horseback riding and the the gathering of the the goods to build a gumbo, there are now elaborate costumes and dances. And so I think it, it I, from what you're telling me, it continues to evolve. Yeah, and and you know, getting back to the urban setting, they're the Indians, uh, the Montego Indians who walk through the streets uh, performing and singing and dancing and uh, showing off their beautiful costumes. And, you know, so we, we've talked about the European contribution to this. There, there's also an obvious West African contribution to this uh, culture in the music and the second line and the syncopated drumming and, and what the Mardi Gras Indians do. Interestingly, uh, this must have been, you know, pretty widespread thing because the Creoles, in Lafayette also do the same sort of thing. I remember as a kid, they would wander around the streets with uh, whips uh, decorated with crepe paper, and they were trying to catch people and get them to kneel down to ask for pardon, and they would you know, ceremonially tap you. I've often said that uh, Mardi Gras looks like a, a really big touristic party, but at its essence, it really is intimate. It's about people visiting their neighbors and going through what they consider their little worlds. And that's the same world that they roam through on Mardi Gras Day, uh, collecting chickens and visiting with their neighbors. Uh, and, and it's a beautiful expression of community solidarity. We're speaking with Cajun folklorist Barry Ansele. And Barry, we already mentioned a little bit, touched on a little bit of the drink of Mardi Gras. Food, of course, and music are also big parts of the celebration. How has that evolved over the years? When people are playing roles behind masks and trying to fool their neighbors, at least temporarily, while they play, you know, it's a, it's a, it's all about playing. It's all about generating laughter and and camaraderie. Um, it's easier to play a role if you imbibe a little bit. <laughs> it, it it loosens your your inhibitions. There are some drinks that have been associated with uh, Mardi Gras. There are foods that are associated with Mardi Gras as well, among them king cakes, of course, and that's a humongous part of the tradition. But out here in the countryside, the food that's more associated with Mardi Gras is a gumbo. Those people are going through the countryside collecting ingredients for a gumbo that they're going to make at the end of the day and have everybody come to eat. Again, it's this community solidarity, getting together, feeling together, especially after the long winter as we're about to have to go and farming again. Music varies just as the celebrations do city versus rural, city versus country, what distinguishes one from the other? Well, uh, they, 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 they all have their own uh, traditional songs. I mean, we've heard, you know, people listening, obviously, must have heard of Ico, 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 Ande, Giacomo Fino, Andande, or the second line stuff, uh, uh, you know, the Mardi Gras Indian songs like Meet, Meet the Boys on the Battlefront. Those were songs that were sung, that were associated with marching bands and groups of singers. Out here in the countryside, there were similarly songs that were that are sung as people are approaching houses and they're performed sometimes by musicians who also sing words, you know, lyrics, but also sometimes by the whole group as they're approaching the house, they sing a begging song. And there's some really interesting uh, aspects to this, by the way. Out here in the countryside, they're singing in French, right? And a typical line of this begging song is, uh, Le Mardi Gras, on vient, pas, on vient de loin, on vient de l'Angleterre. They're singing in French and claiming they come from England, hmm. which of course is, is a typical carnivalesque joke. They're singing in French and, and saying, no, no, we're from England. 
<laughs> and they also claim in the song, we're not evildoers, we're only beggars, we're only, we, we don't mean any harm, we, just, we only ask for a chicken or, or some onions or something to put in the gumbo. And uh, every community has its own version of that song. You know, I, in 2020 and 2021, most of the Mardi Gras parades were canceled, but people still found a way to celebrate. There were house floats. Many of the careers still rode with limited numbers, but they hopped on those horses. Do you think that's a sign that in one way or another, Mardi Gras is here to stay? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's such a powerful expression of community identity and solidarity. You know, if you go back to um, the Mardi Gras in the year after Katrina in New Orleans, there's a wonderful documentary uh, called Tootie's Last Suit. They were interviewing people in the, you know, the various Indian crews. And uh, they had a number of people saying, we have to pull off a Mardi Gras. It's, It's critical that we be able to put off a Mardi Gras because it's who we are. And they were, there were, there's footage of people coming out of ruined houses in magnificent headdresses. And while that might seem incongruous, it was not. It was exactly what New Orleans as a community needed. New Orleans as a community needed to know that it was going to survive. And one way they knew they were going to survive is if they could pull off any kind of Mardi Gras at all. I think we kind of see that happening with COVID. Some of the runs were canceled, but some of the others went on. And they incorporated COVID masking into their masking strategies, which is brilliant. Now, Barry, I know you've actually been out in the field during Mardi Gras recording the music of Mardi Gras. Can you set up for us uh, a, a couple of the, the, the songs that you've captured? The ones that we recorded as a part of our project, we went out to just about every community that has a Mardi Gras today. And by the way, <clears throat> if you go back 100 and some odd years, in South Louisiana, every community that had a name for itself, no matter how small, uh, probably had some for some sort of Mardi Gras. And they probably had some sort of Mardi Gras song that they had adapted and evolved for their own use. We went out to uh, every one of uh, just about every one of them that we could find, and we found some really amazing performances. Uh, in one, in the Basile Mardi Gras, the singer starts off the song by saying, uh, the night, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the road is long and the night is coming and we have to move on. It's time to move and because they, they have to go to the next house to get enough chickens. And it's a, it's a stunning performance of call and response between the lead singer and the whole chorus. And, and uh, in, in another version, we were in Gromare, and their song has to do with the dwindling bottle. Uh, and, and they get to the end, they get to the dregs, and they say, now, the, now, you, now even the dregs are gone. We have to uh, find another bottle. Uh, and at the, the their song ends, the whole the whole group sings this together. And the song ends by saying, you know, we're not so foolish as to move along without one more song, one more drink. Every song worth singing is worth toasting. Yes, 
Barry, thank you so much for this quick course on Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras 101 by Dr. Barry Ancelay. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Barry Ancelay is Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies and Center for Louisiana Studies Research Fellow at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Again, Barry, thank you. You're listening to Louisiana Considered from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. I'm Karen Henderson. These days, colorful lights are practically synonymous with Mardi Gras floats, but a century ago, crews relied on torchbearers also known as flambeau carriers, to light up their parade routes. But in 1946, flambeau carriers went on strike, petitioning to earn $5 per parade for their hot, laborious work. And while they protested, Mardi Gras parades rolled in the dark. Back in 2017, NPR's Lane Kaplan-Levingson reported on the flambeau strike for the Tripod podcast. Today, we give that story a second listen. When it's over, I get disappointed. That's Eddie Smith, a flambeau carrier who's been toting, as he calls it, for over 20 years. Flambeau carriers have been part of Mardi Gras history since the 19th century. They carry tall, metal, candelabra-like torches fueled with kerosene to light the night parades. It's basically like holding a giant street lamp over your head, a flaming street lamp. It can be hot, exhausting work. But Eddie's all about it. I just be like, man, why Mardi Gras got to be over so fast? Why I can't keep going and going and going? And we'll get back to Eddie. But now, imagine not one, but four whole years without Mardi Gras. I could not imagine four years without Mardi Gras. That's Ryan Fertel, a writer and teacher in New Orleans. The papers of the period leading up to Mardi Gras in 1946 describe the city as like very mirth starved and just kind of like very famished for the pomp of Mardi Gras, the pomp and pageantry of Mardi Gras. And I don't doubt it. 1946, the year after World War II ended, and after those four long years, Mardi Gras is finally back. And so Mardi Gras rolls around for the first time in a long time, it must feel like. And a central component of Mardi Gras disappears from the streets, the flambeau carriers. Ryan wrote an article about flambeau carriers that came out in the March 2017 issue of Oxford American. And the flambeau carriers are African-American men, historically, who um, carry these cross-shaped wooden sticks. At the top of these wooden sticks is a big pot or can of kerosene, two gallons of the gas of the stuff. Uh, altogether, it weighs about 70 pounds. And um, they carry these cross-shaped torches to, to light the streets. If you've been to a parade on St. Charles Avenue, you know what Ryan's talking about. The flambeaux still twirl their torches for a number of carnival crews today. But their role originated out of an actual need for light. In the 19th century, before electricity, the flambeaux served a functional purpose, to literally light the parades so crowds could see the floats in royalty. The first carriers were enslaved men and freemen of color. Now back to the 20th century. Before World War II, carriers were paid $2 per parade, plus tips, whatever parade watchers tossed their way as they danced down the street. Then the war starts, and Mardi Gras is put on hold until the war ends. 
So then 1946 rolls around, and? The flambeau carriers go to the Mardi Gras den, and they ask for higher pay. The carriers asked for more than twice their pre-war wages, $5 per parade. Right after the Second World War, African Americans had been in the military. This is Carolyn Cobb, a scholar of New Orleans history. They knew what they had done for their country, and they didn't want to be treated badly when they got back. She says this is what may have caused the flambeau to ask for higher wages. So they ask for $5 a pop, and the crews come back with an offer of two fifty. The flambeau hold their ground and insist on 5 and the crews won't budge either. A spokesman for the major carnival organizations told the New Orleans Item newspaper at the time, quote, Our position is going to remain unalterable. The increase we have offered is all that we are going to offer. We anticipate no trouble in getting along without them. And so they strike. Which leaves the crew of Momus without lights. So crews that roll after Momus, like Comus and Proteus, scramble for a backup plan to find replacement carriers. Scabs. They turn to African-American war veterans and ask them to step in. Crew captains approach the veterans saying that they should volunteer their services once again so that the city can benefit from Carnival and the experience can resume to what it was before the war. They said, like, you know, for the good of the country, you know, it's for the good of Mardi Gras. So please, like, take this lower pay rate and come march this flamp out. Do you know if the appeal to World War II veterans were specifically to African-American veterans? Yeah, yeah. The Picayune States item talk about uh, appealing to black veterans to, to pick up the flambeau, to like, you know, to take the torch, to, to do it for America. But it, it, was, it would yeah. be their patriotic honor. Right. And these veterans, frankly, found this disgusting and didn't scab. And so? Momus and Comus and others march without lights. The parades rolled in the dark. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Captain Levinson. You know, the thing about that strike is the biggest report that happened in the newspaper was on the front page of the New Orleans Item. There's Carolyn Cobb. The Item was the only unionized paper there ever was in the city. And they covered that strike. The Times-Picayune, on the other hand, had little mention of the strike. But along with the New Orleans item, the black-run Louisiana Weekly newspaper also had considerable coverage. Here's Ryan. One man told the Weekly's reporter that instead of all the nerve appealing to veterans, there's not a place along the parade route where vets' wives or children can find seats to see parades. It's basically like, how are you going to ask us to save the party if we're not even invited in the first place? So the flambeau struck with the support of black veterans who refused to become scab laborers. It seems to have been a a total strike. Well, 1946 is a real interesting year. Charles Chamberlain is a labor historian and says this flambeau strike fits within a larger context of post-war organizing efforts. It comes at the end of the war when there's a lot of momentum, especially in the African-American community, for political organizing and labor organizing. Charles says that during the war, newly politicized church leaders and labor organizers were working together in New Orleans for economic and civil rights. So I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, some of the Flambeau members were either members of a local union that was active and then politically active, or hanging out with other people, either their church or just as friends who were part of this sweeping political activism in 1946. He says this also explains why the African-Americans were not about being scabs. You may have had such strong political solidarity, especially among veterans, 
who really saw, after they fought for democracy, saw democracy back at home being so important um, that they refused to basically cross the picket line. It also doesn't surprise Charles that the Times-Pick hardly covered the story. Well, I think the the Times-Picayune was known as having a more business-friendly editorial policy, and maybe they didn't want to give coverage to any labor unrest that could be positive coverage. And I imagine that was an important, just symbolic strike. Symbolic and successful. After a year of refusing to march, the crews granted the flambeau $4 per parade, a dollar short of their request. And the parades were lit once again. Today, flambeau carriers are paid between $50 and $80 per parade. But it ain't about the fit, it's about how much you get on the chips on the street. That's Eddie Smith again, who you heard at the beginning of this story. His first parade of 2017, he made 600 bucks. But then again, it was the NBA All-Star Weekend. Even still, Eddie says, it's not just about the money. He also loves it in part for the physical workout. Remember, those torches weigh like 70 pounds and you're carrying it over your head for hours. It's still as hard as it was 100 years ago. After this, I feel nasty. Like, I need to really take a fast bath, because that stuff be all on you, then you be sweating in it. And that kerosene mixed with that sweat, that kerosene get in my nose. And when I take a shower, I put the towel in my nose, buku black stuff come out my nose. So that's why you got to have a handkerchief to cover up your nose so you won't inhale that stuff. I love it, though. I love it. Mostly because carrying a flambeau gives Eddie a way to actually be a part of Mardi Gras and not just watch it from the outside. Here's Ryan. It's a way to be embedded in Mardi Gras without being of Mardi Gras. So without like paying those extravagant dues it takes to be a member of Rex or whatever. I mean, this is what Mardi Gras is all about. It's all about participation. And it's about tradition. Eddie's 33 and has been carrying since he's nine years old. I grew up doing this. Like I say, it's been like generations, you know what I'm saying? My grandpa even did it, so, you know, they got it from their daddy. I got it from my own granddaddy, and I ain't never looked back. That's why Eddie's going to keep doing it until he's too old to tote, he says, which is why he's training the next generation already. I got a son right now, because once I get a little older, he can keep doing it, showing his, his kid how to make an honest dollar. You could make an honest dollar the right way, you know? I'm just teaching him how to hustle. This is emotional for Eddie. And I can relate to the guy for getting sad about something ending before it's even over. This is the only time I see people come together when only for the parade. You know what I'm saying? And I like that, you know what I'm saying? And that's why I don't be liking it to be over with. I be won't cry. You can cry in front of me, it's okay. <laughs> but it's not all emo all the time over here with Eddie. Honestly, he likes it for the attention. I just like the attention, you know what I'm saying? I just like it. It made me feel like I'm somebody. It's you know like that song, you know. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Yeah, 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 I yeah, need yeah, love yeah. and affection. Love. Love and affection. I didn't know you was on Future. That's what's up, <laughs> Come though. on, of course. <laughs> I would thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Kieran Henderson. Thanks to our guests, Barry Ansele, Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, 
Special thanks to NPR's Lane Kaplan-Lovingson on their reporting for Tripod. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the historic New Orleans Collection.